Hello and welcome to the Israel-Palestine podcast. As direct peace talks have started into being this summer, little has been said about the 10th anniversary of the Camp David summit of July 2000, which launched the most credible round of final status talks ever held between Israeli and Palestinian officials. And yet, the Camp David summit is perhaps the most familiar talking point in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Early on in the Second Intifada, Israelis argued that there was no partner for peace because at Camp David, Yasser Arafat was presented with an unprecedented, generous Israeli offer. Everything he could possibly wish for in the framework of the two-stage solution, a Palestinian state almost on the 67 borders, with East Jerusalem as its capital, and yet he turned it down. Such was the justification for continued settlement expansion, for refusing final status negotiations, and for ostracizing Arafat throughout Ariel Sharon's premiership. Palestinians responded with their own version of events. In particular, a map published by the PLO-affiliated Orient House and widely circulated in the Western and Arab press, purporting to illustrate the peace deal tabled at Camp David. In the Palestinian counter-narrative, the settlement proposed at Camp David consisted of a Palestinian state in Gaza plus three enclaves in the West Bank, three islands in a sea of Israel, a non-contiguous, non-viable state comparable to the Bantistans of apartheid South Africa. The implication is that Camp David was proof not of Palestinian, but of Israeli bad faith since Israel was not prepared to countenance a viable state of Palestine. So what actually happened at Camp David? What does it tell us about the protagonists and the events that followed? And what should we look out for in future negotiations? Both Israeli spin and Palestinian spin are simplistic and misleading. Fortunately, however, there is enough information out there to to reconstruct a fuller, subtler, and more interesting story. For the record, I have relied on the testimony of the Israeli negotiator Shlomo Ben-Ami, the Palestinian negotiator Hussein Aga, the American Robert Malley, and of course the ever-present chief American negotiator Dennis Ross. Reassuringly, the four men differ starkly in their value judgments but still coincide on all the key facts. Since I will be quoting at length from Dennis Ross, I will say a quick word about his career. He was born in 1949 to a Catholic mother and Jewish father, but self-identified as a Jew after the 1967 war. Throughout the 1980s, Ross had close ties to the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee, known as APAC, the main pro-Israel lobby group in Washington. Ross was asked by AIPAC to create a think tank whose reports would be seen as more objective than the papers produced by AIPAC's in-house research department. So Ross founded WINEP, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and directed it for many years. He then went on to become America's chief Middle East peace negotiator for most of the Bush senior and Clinton administrations. It's unsurprising that in his 800-page memoir published in 2004, Ross stressed that Arafat bore ultimate responsibility for the failed peace process. So what was on the table at Camp David 
and in subsequent negotiations. Well, remember the Palestinian claim that they were offered three enclaves, islands in a sea of Israel. This was not pure fabrication. It was Israel's negotiating position at the beginning of the summit, and it's right there in Dennis Ross's book. But over the course of the discussions, there was significant movement in the Palestinian direction. By the end of the summit, the proposal was a contiguous state that had a border with Jordan, so not isolated inside Israeli territory. Israel would annex 9% of the West Bank, but this would not chop the territory up into enclaves. In exchange, the Palestinians would be given a land swap equivalent to 1% of the area of the West Bank. East Jerusalem and the Temple Mount would essentially be annexed to Israel, and there would be constraints on Palestinian sovereignty. The Palestinian state would be demilitarized, Israel would control Palestinian airspace, and would have the right to deploy its army along the state of Palestine's border with Jordan. This gives Palestinians substantially less than Israeli spokesmen have claimed, but those claims were not pure fabrication either. They just conflate Camp David with another proposal from later that year. The Clinton parameters of December 2000 gave the Palestinians 94 to 96% of the West Bank with a 1 to 3% land swap. East Jerusalem would be divided so that Arab neighborhoods would go to Palestine and Jewish settlements to Israel. Israel would have sovereignty over the Western Wall and the Palestinians over the Temple Mount. The Palestinian state would be non-militarized this time rather than demilitarized. And Palestine would have sovereignty over its airspace, but would allow Israel to use it for military training purposes. Both the Palestinian and Israeli soundbites are half true. Palestinians focus on Israel's first bargaining position, but ignore the more credible proposals tabled over the next two weeks. The Israeli claim about Camp David corresponds roughly to the Clinton parameters from five months later. This is because a soundbite tells you what happened, but fudges the timing and context. But timing and context is exactly what can tell us how and why these negotiations failed, which is why I now want to have a look at the broader diplomatic context in which the negotiations took place, and in particular the state of mind that the different participants brought to the summit. Concluding a peace deal is not like getting a deal on a car. What matters is not just the offer and the price, but also the context and the human and political relationships at play. Actually, it is like buying a car. Because psychology is very important in the showroom. A smart salesman will try to convince you you're getting a bargain. Not because you're necessarily short of cash, but because it means he respects you. Sometimes being ripped off is easier to take if you both talk like you're getting a good deal. At least that way, he lets you walk out with your head held high. He's taking your money, he can at least leave you your pride. Also, by helping you to rationalize a dubious purchase, the salesman may not be convincing you, but he's giving you an idea of how you can sell it to your wife and kids. There's another type of salesman who tries to convince you that you have no choice. You'll never find a better deal elsewhere. Or, he says, you've come all this way, you've wasted a whole afternoon. You don't want to have to leave empty-handed, do you? Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak was exactly this kind of salesman. 
Barak was obsessed with putting his opposite number on the spot. Arafat wanted low-key preparatory negotiations, but Barak insisted on a high-stakes, all-or-nothing summit. Concessions made in preparatory talks would just be pocketed, he said, and then more concessions would be peeled off like salami slices. But at a summit, Arafat would be under pressure to come away with something. It was essential that Arafat felt he had something to lose. In particular, Arafat risked losing his hard-won relationship with the American administration if he took the blame for a failed summit. Indeed, Barack told Dennis Ross that a deal could only come after a crisis, when the Palestinians were despairing. The tactic was to use a short carrot and a long stick. He would start with a very low offer, and only when a crisis was reached in the second week of the summit, the Palestinians despairing, would he present them with something he thought they could just about accept. There was another reason Barak wanted an all-or-nothing summit, this time domestic. Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin had been assassinated because he alienated the Israeli right. Barak felt that a protracted process might sap his domestic capital for the sake of a deal that might never happen. Instead, he made a show of giving nothing to the Palestinians prior to Camp David. He boasted to the public that even Netanyahu had transferred some territory to, to PA control, whereas he, Barak, had reneged on all his transfer obligations and had allowed settlement to accelerate. That way, he would save his domestic capital for when he most needed it, to sell a peace deal after Arafat had signed on the dotted line. How much the Israeli right actually appreciated Barak's communication strategy is a matter for debate. What is certain is that the Palestinians didn't appreciate it at all. So how did the Palestinians perceive the summit that they were being pushed into? Well, they were endlessly wary of being manipulated. Going back to the car salesman, of course he will manipulate his client. But what makes the customer feel really disrespected is when the salesman doesn't bother to hide it. I think this is the sense with which the Palestinians arrived at Camp David. Remember, the peace process had stalled when Netanyahu came to power in 1996. Barak formed his government in July 1999, but ignored the Palestinian track until March 2000, choosing to negotiate instead with Syria. To repeat, for the first half of Barak's short-lived administration, he ignored the Palestinians completely. It was only when the Syrian track failed that Barak turned to the Palestinians. Palestinians saw this as an effort to weaken their position, as they would be isolated as the last party to conclude an agreement with Israel. After stalling for nearly a year, Barak says they have to reach a deal in a matter of weeks and insists on an immediate high-stakes summit. Arafat feels like he's being ignored, then pressured, put on the spot, and will be pushed into accepting a raw deal. When Barak reneges on transferring control over territory, Arafat feels he is losing bargaining chips and will now have to barter over things that should have been in his pocket. For all these reasons, Arafat resists rushing straight into the summit. But Clinton bows to Barak's pressure. That brings me to where the Americans fit into all this. Dennis Ross recalls that at the beginning of the summit, I quote, 
Barak, as usual, had his own sense of timing and his own game plan. It was not ours. Barak wanted to have nothing happen the first two days. Only after two days of struggle should we put down some ideas. He told the president that the crisis and key point of decision should only come on day five. In fact, despite any initial reticence, the Americans broadly went along with Barak's game plan, largely because they were so impressed by his sincere determination to reach a final settlement. Remember the infamous map with three Palestinian islands in a sea of Israel. On day five, Clinton presented that map as an Israeli proposal. They knew the map was unacceptable as it stood. It was a bargaining position intended to take them where they wanted to go. But the Palestinian negotiator, Abu Allah, infuriated them by refusing to play ball. Ross recalls, I quote, Abu Allah continued to resist and repeated old arguments about the settlements being illegal and the Palestinians needing the 1967 lines. The president told him, I don't see what you lose. You can still discuss the orange areas in the Jordan Valley and in the corridor from Jerusalem to Jericho, i.e. between the enclaves, and see how you turn that to brown. Abu Allah said that if Israel wanted to justify modifications in the border, it needed to do so with a more reasonable map. The president was livid and let it rip. When I read these passages in Dennis Ross's book, I always think of the market trader sketch from Monty Python's Life of Brian. Ain't you gonna aggle? Here, this bloke won't aggle. The trader then talks Brian through the haggling process. Now you say, then for that you must be joking. And so on. It's on YouTube for those who haven't seen the film. Abu Allah refused to haggle from such a low starting point because he felt that it could only lead to a relatively low end point. The spectacle of Clinton making an offer and then telling Abu Allah what he should ask to change can only be described as Monty Python-esque. Back to Dennis Ross. Abu Allah asked quite revealingly, why are their tactics okay and mine are not? For Abu Allah, this was all about tactics. He was trying to get the best deal he could, and this was simply part of the game. Didn't the president understand that? I told Abu Allah that the president's patience had run out. It was time to get past the games. But the whole exercise was an Israeli game in which the Americans were complicit. Clinton himself felt uncomfortable about this and lost his temper with Barack in private that evening. The following day, Barack wrote a furious letter complaining that the Americans were paying too much attention to Palestinian objections. Ross acknowledged that the letter was part manipulation, but told his bosses, I quote, We cannot let Barack in, sink into a deeper funk. The president needs to meet with him and let him vent. The Secretary of State agreed, but also felt that Barack owed us an apology for saying we were all Palestinian simps. I sympathizers. When you read this passage in Ross's book, you can't help picturing a parent trying to mediate between his biological and adopted child. At first, thinking rationally, he tells them both off, but emotionally he is unable to be balanced and is persuaded by the natural child's tantrum. Barak, 
calculating and sure of himself, had planned every move of how his tactics would lead to a viable peace deal that preserved Israeli interests. But the Palestinians wouldn't play the role that he had cast them in, so the method was adapted. After Abu Allah refused to make a counter-proposal, the Americans conferred with the Israelis and came back with a somewhat improved offer, assuring the Palestinians that this time they weren't just starting low, this time they were close to the bottom line. But the Palestinians again held out and refused to counter-propose. So first the Americans filled in the gaps between the three islands, then they went up to 89% of the West Bank, then 90 then 91, and then gave the Palestinians a bigger and bigger foothold in East Jerusalem and on the Temple Mount. At every stage, the Americans would confer with the Israelis and then say to the Palestinians, this time we're really bringing you the most Israel can possibly give. It turned out not to be true, so it looked like America was complicit in Israel's tactics. By presenting false bottom lines and then moving them, American negotiators encouraged the Palestinians to ask for more and made it hard for them to believe that a real bottom line had ever been reached. Perversely, they also gave the Palestinians the impression that they were playing a game on Israel's behalf, and this undermined any credibility they had as a neutral mediator. Let's go back to the content of the deal for a moment. Remember that Palestinians were not expected to take the low starting offer, but it was very obvious where the implicit destination was, a Palestinian state on 90-ish percent of the West Bank, with a very tenuous Palestinian presence in East Jerusalem and the holy sites, and serious constraints on sovereignty. Chief Israeli negotiator Shlomo Ben-Ami has said that if he were a Palestinian, he would not have been able to accept what was tabled at Camp David. So why did Dennis Ross expect them to bite? Remember the Monty Python haggling scene and how Ross dismisses Abu Allah's appeals to international law as old arguments? Well, he spins out this repudiation of international law into a whole methodology. Not all of his American colleagues shared, shared this outlook, here is what Ross says about the differences between them. Aaron Miller was always arguing for a just and fair proposal. I was not against a fair proposal, but I felt the concept of fairness by definition subjective. Similarly, both Robert Malley and Gamal Halal believed that the Palestinians were entitled to 100% of the territory. Swaps should thus be equal. They believed that this was a Palestinian right. Aaron tended to agree with them, not on the basis of right, but on the basis that every other Arab negotiating partner had gotten 100%. Why should the Palestinians be different? I disagreed. I was focused not on reconciling rights, but on addressing needs. In negotiations, one side's principle or right is usually the other side's impossibility. Of course there are irreducible rights. I wanted to address what each side needed, not what they wanted and not what they felt they were entitled to. What are we to make of this mini-manifesto? Well, it's hard to see how rights, 
agreed upon by international courts of justice and almost all governments around the world, can be subjective, while needs, as determined by one American official, can be objective, especially when that official has such strong ties to APAC, the pro-Israel lobby. Ross's closeness to the Israeli political elite will obviously inform the way he frames problems. Again and again, Ross frames an issue in terms of symbolic Palestinian needs as compared to real Israeli needs. So, for example, the arrangement on the eastern border had to, I quote, meet Palestinian symbolic needs while also responding to very real, legitimate Israeli concerns about security. He has a similar approach to Jerusalem, and on territory, Israeli annexation is supposed to meet real needs, whereas any land swap is symbolic. Remember that the eastern border is the West Bank's only access to the outside world apart from Israel. What need could be more pressing for the new state of Palestine than to have a border with Jordan? By dismissing this concern as symbolic, Ross betrays his obtuseness to the Palestinian mindset, contrasted with a hypersensitivity to Israeli preoccupation. Here's another problem. If these needs are so objective, then why do they keep moving? At the start of Camp David, Israeli needs are pressed like a rock against the foamy sponge of Palestinian needs, and over the next few months, the sponge slowly expands to its natural volume. Going back to the format of the talks, instead of starting with a low offer to the Palestinians and urging them to haggle, why didn't America just put its own position on the table and say, this is what we think a fair solution looks like, and any departure from this baseline has to be an equal trade-off. America would have looked less like an Israeli proxy and would have had more credibility when demanding concessions from the Palestinians. This is what the Carter administration did at Camp David I in 1977 when it mediated between Israel and Egypt. Why didn't America take the same approach this time? Part of the answer can be found in Ross's memoirs. Rather than getting both sides to recognize an international border, Dennis Ross was trying to accommodate as many perceived Israeli needs as possible. But eventually, America did adopt another method. Five months later, on the 23rd of December 2000, the Clinton parameters were proposed to the two sides. The formula was much nearer to a return to the 1967 lines than anything discussed at Camp David. A Palestinian state in 94 to 96% of the West Bank, a 1 to 3% land swap, all the Arab neighborhoods in East Jerusalem go to Palestine, as do Muslim holy places, and fewer constraints on sovereignty. And rather than starting with a veiled Israeli offer and expecting the Palestinians to haggle, both sides were asked to sign up to an American proposal. And then what happened? Well, Ehud Barak, give or take a few nuances, said yes, and Yasser Arafat, also with nuances, said no. This episode gives Dennis Ross a far more compelling case for his claim that Arafat was by nature 
not up to the job of peacemaking. That is why Ross begins his book with a chapter called The End, where he tells us how Arafat refused the Clinton parameters. But there's an important fact that Ross, quite astonishingly, omits from his blow-by-blow account of the events leading up to his final scene. Ehud Barak had resigned as Prime Minister two weeks earlier on the 11th of December 2000. It's worth stressing, not a single sentence of Ross's chronological account is spent alerting the reader to this absolutely macro event. It was by then clear from the polls that George Bush would be president by the 20th of January 2001, and Ariel Sharon would be Prime Minister by early February. Even with the Clinton parameters in place, this was not enough time to hammer out a detailed peace deal. Perhaps Arafat should have said yes, to bolster Barack's slim chances of winning the election. It could be argued that even if it meant a microscopic possibility of creating a Palestinian state, Arafat should have taken it, especially given the horrors that followed. But Arafat felt he had something to lose by signing up to a document that gave away some Palestinian rights. Those rights, set out in UN resolutions like 194 and 242, were his bargaining chips for future talks. And indeed, these are sacred texts for the Palestinian political class. From his point of view, he was being asked to give up these chips and would probably get nothing in return. Some will still blame him for not jumping at the chance, but this cannot be the whole story. From 1996 to 1999, the first Netanyahu government was opposed to the two-state concept. Then Barak ignored Arafat for nine months, and then for six months, the US and Israel tabled unpalatable proposals. When the Palestinians finally received a credible proposal in the last month of the Clinton presidency, It was two weeks after Barak's coalition had collapsed because his partners were increasingly sceptical about the peace process. So when, in his preface, Dennis Ross summarizes all this by asking wearily, how many times did we have to hear Arafat say no before we got the message? He is clearly not doing justice to all the data. And yet most Israelis think that this rhetorical question sums up the whole story. And that's what the sound bites that make up our 24-hour news cycle do. They condense an ocean of events into a little drop. We find ourselves battered by identical raindrops rather than steering a path through a choppy but nonetheless navigable sea of information. Barak and other Israelis bombarded the Israeli and Western media with the one-liner about handing everything to Arafat on a plate, and Arafat saying no. And this was the justification for so much that happened in the Intifada period. That's why Shimon Peres called Barak the only politician in history to fashion an ideology out of his own failure. Of course, the Arab media and some left-leaning media in the West have done much the same thing. It was their oversimplifications that presented Israel's peace efforts as a sham, implying that there is no point in Palestinians returning to negotiations. 
when in fact, every ramification of Barak's singularly ungenial personality had been oriented towards achieving peace, albeit on his own terms. And indeed, no less can be said of Dennis Ross. In the next episode, I will pick up the same theme and look at the short bursts of negotiations that have occurred since the end of the Clinton presidency. If you want to know more about the Camp David summit and the Clinton parameters, I recommend Dennis Ross's memoir, The Missing Peace, spelt like in peace process, and The Tragedy of Errors, an article by Robert Malley and Hussein Aga, published in the New York Review of Books. Further details can be found on my website, www.israelpalestinepodcast.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.